0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, one hundred percent Canadian, one hundred percent commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Erin Cameron. And Adam
1: Powadic. Welcome to the commercial real estate podcast, powered by First National. I'm your host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, Adam Powadic. Today, our guest is Frank Magliocco from PricewaterhouseCoopers. He's the partner national real estate leader. Welcome aboard, Frank. Great to be here. So, so first and foremost, this is the third year that we've done this PwC sort of emerging trends in Canadian real estate report, and that's—I mean, Adam and I are the only ones that care about these little. Celebrations that this is the first third repeat type of type of guest. Now,
2: well, we're honored. Different,
1: yeah, different different guests. In the last two years, we've had Chris Potter, but this year we're we're blessed with having Frank with us. So, so welcome on Frank. So, before we get into the report, and there's a lot of nitty gritty, and and for our regular listeners, we're going to keep this pretty quick and fast because there's a lot of a lot of stuff to cover. We are going to reference page numbers in the report for the Canadian section. It's a much bigger report, actually. It does all of North America, but there's a Canadian section which is chapter two, I think. Chapter uh, one, chapter right at the front. chapter one. So just, I wouldn't recommend, or I mean, you can do what you want, but don't download it and follow through, follow along. I mean, you can if you want to. If, you're, if you're at the gym, keep, at the, keep working yeah, out. Yeah, keep working okay. out, don't <laughs> worry about it. Uh, but we will reference some of the pages so if you have any interest, go look at more of the detail because there is a lot of data in here. We will we will be referencing the page number. So sorry before we go there, Frank. You know you've been at PwC your entire life. Like how did you? What's the story? Lifer. Yeah. 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 So
2: uh, 30 years actually. This oh, year. I was joking. Be, I know. I know. <laughs> I know, the, I know it doesn't look that way. <laughs> yeah, no, I know it doesn't. It doesn't. But 30 years at PwC, and I probably spent uh, the better part of 25 years in real estate. So it's you know it's I say it's running in my in my veins. Real estate. Sure. Sure. Doing what kind of things? Well, I guess my day job and I'm an assurance partner, but I, um, I run our, I lead our real estate practice for Canada and it covers off, you know, we have our different lines of service, which are the assurance, the tax, the consulting and deals all focused in real estate. So in our team, you know, we've got lawyers, we've got valuators, we have, uh, you know, people that are, you know, technologists. That all are focused around real estate. And what really my responsibility is making sure that we bring all these great services to our clients and you know, potential clients
1: in terms of delivering a great experience. Sure, and where does this report kind of stack within all of that?
2: So this report, you know, this has been around, this is the 40th year, the one you have in front of you. The 40th year that we produce this report. In partnership with ULI, and it's a global report. So there's the emerging trends in North America, there's one in Asia, there's a global one, there's a European one. So there's a whole host of different uh, reports. This one here has been 40 years. The Canadian supplement now is, uh, I believe, in its 12th year. And it really, you know, we, for the previous years, we were always contributing to it. And we just found that, you know, Canada, as the real estate assets were becoming more and more institutionalized, and the global pension funds were really, you know, reaching all over the world. It made so much more sense that we have a separate chapter on Canada because it's a great destination. We we see a lot of investment in Canada. And some of the largest investors, believe it or not, are the Canadian pension funds. You know, the OMERS of the world, the Cadillac Fairviews, all of these. Largest
1: Canadian investors or global investors? Well, or both, some in I
2: both, guess. some in both. Like there are, you know, some very large ones, but these punch well above their weight. So if you go to any, I've been to a, a number of, you know, conferences and the common theme there is that the Canadian pension funds clearly do punch well above their weight. So they're, they're big players on the global scale. They are doing some really, really big deals and some iconic ones, you know, the most, you know, one that's gotten a lot of fanfare. I'm not sure if you've been catching the news in the last couple of weeks is the launch of Hudson Yards, right? Mm-hmm. So Hudson Yards, you know, that big new Manhattan real estate development that they did there was, you know, Homers was one of the people that were involved in that. And the
0: Bill Till value, I think, was the... You know, multiple billion dollar ranges yeah. or it not. It's, yeah, it was yeah. like Massive. 10 towers. I mean, you're I not won't familiar. quote a number because somebody yeah, else. Yeah, you're not if familiar, wrong, just, <laughs> just
1: Google Hudson Yards and you'll see the scale of this giant development Massive. above a train track exactly. or a train yard in, in Manhattan. Yeah. Those engineers earn their paycheck. Oh, wow. yeah. yeah. They're actually doing the same thing in a number of cities. I think people are realizing that's a great way to unleash value in in urban centers because there's not a lot of remaining yeah. parking lots. Well, right? we
2: have our own little example right here down, down the road, right? Right,
1: yeah. The uh, CIBC Square. Right, and the potential. potential. Potential for a park there. I mean, we're not doing the same thing as building billions of dollars worth of real estate, but nevertheless, it's unleashing you know valuable access to land. Absolutely. So maybe we start about PwC and just it's not a Canadian company; it's a North American or or I guess a global company. And how does the Canadian chapter fit in, or the Canadian arm fit into the global entity?
2: So first of all, PwC is a Canadian partnership, but we're part of a global network, headquartered. uh, So they. Chair is in New York City, both New York City and London. But here in Canada, our head office is here in Toronto. You know, we're about seven thousand employees here in Canada. Uh, globally, we're at two hundred fifty thousand, if I'm not mistaken, employees globally. So, um, a big, a big organization that covers all aspects. You know, different industry groups and things
1: like that. I think people when they hear PwC, they think accounting, but it's not. So, why don't you dispel that a little bit?
2: Yeah, it's more than accounting for sure. I think that's where it got its roots. Clearly we don't forget about that, you know, the audit and the accountant. But I think right now we're a professional service firm, you know, that's very broad that brings all sorts of values. Like I said, we have tax people, we have technology people. You know, we're helping what our mission is really to help people solve, you know, their complex issues. You know, whether it's a cybersecurity issue that they have, you know, whether it's, you know, a digital a digital transformation that they're going through, their organization, you know, we have the various competencies throughout the organization that are able to help deliver
0: value to companies. My first job post-university uh, was in an online casino and the numbers there and the payers were all verified by PwC, the notion being that it added sorority to the gamblers that uh, a reputable name was behind it. So it was big value to us to have that logo on the uh, on the servers,
2: you know, today when I tell people I'm with PwC, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, "Oh, you're an auditor, right?" That's the first thing that comes out, and again, that's that's our roots, and we, you know, we don't forget about our roots, but we're much more than that yeah, of at course. this stage.
1: And then, how big is the real estate arm in comparison to some of the other products?
2: So, the real estate arm of PwC, or we'll call it the real estate practice, is fairly significant. It represents about 10 percent of the Canadian firm revenues. So that's a pretty sizable one. You know, I think we've got numbers out there that have been public, so I won't be talking out of, out of school, but the Canadian firm revenues are north of a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the real estate practice itself is quite substantial, and that covers both the public side, so, you know, the REITs that you see and, and the uh, pension funds, but it also covers a lot of the privates. And in the private space, it's predominantly the home builders, condo builders, you know, land developers, asset managers. That is a big part of the uh, private space in real estate, and you know one of the space that's getting a lot of attention and noise these days with what's happening in in Canada.
1: Before okay, before we jump into this, my brain went. Let's talk about the numbers and all the details. But I guess we should probably talk about where this information came from in the first place and the methodology before we start talking about what it says. Awesome.
2: Yeah. So, so what we do is we actually have face to face interviews with senior executives right across Canada and in the US. And I think uh, last year in the 2019 report, we had 750 face-to-face interviews and over 1,600 online questionnaires that were completed. And they're all targeted at the C-suite. Of real estate companies, both the publics, privates. So when you think about it, when we go out and talk to these individuals, these are the people that are making the trends. You know, these are the largest real estate companies in Canada. And in, in North America, for that matter, because of the US piece. And so if these real estate executives can't figure out what's going to happen next year, then I'm not sure who will, because they're the ones that are creating the trends. So that's how it goes. And and we're actually starting our, our 2020 right now. We're in the planning process right now. So we're kind of gearing up for all the uh, interviews that we need to do. And again, we cover off the broad spectrum of real estate executives and we get their input in terms of what
0: the real estate's going to look like next year. I'd like to hear the compliment about the respondees because I participated the last two years on the online forum. So it's nice to
1: hear that you think it's the brightest stars in uh,
0: real estate. So. <laughs> they,
1: they discounted yours, Adam. Yeah. They discounted it. And so, so when was that information collected, just so we can give people some of timeframes?
2: Okay, so yeah. we did last year, we would have done our interviews between June, July, and August. The report was written in September and then we had the launch in October. So that was kind of the timing of the, so, you know, clearly things have moved from October to where we are today, but, you know, not drastically. I think the key themes that we talked about in the report are still holding true right now. And, you know, again, are consistent with what you know we heard and
0: continue to hear right now as we visit our our clients and and targets these days. And for anybody not paying attention to their, local uh, ULI chapter when you say you launched in October you're talking about like a multi-city tour this is a, you know not just hitting published on an online forum yeah. you know this is this this show gets taken on the road yeah. to uh, most major cities across the country i know i've seen it in uh, vancouver toronto ottawa and those are the cities i really pay attention to but
2: yeah so we actually coordinate the launch north american wide so there's a big launch and it's usually done on the the eve of the ULI um, event that happens, I think last year was in San Francisco, and so we coordinate the launch on the same date, and that was in October. And from there, then we carry that right across Canada, and it's carried across right across the U.S. in all the various cities across the U.S., and it happens and, and rolls out from October on. But October is when we have the, the press release. I know this year we're going to be moving our, our launch up a bit. So we expect so you're going to gonna be, that you're gonna be back soon, is what you're we're, saying. We're going to be back yeah. soon because yeah, we're we're they're, they're moving this up about a month, if I'm not mistaken, in terms so, of timing.
1: So our next episode, <laughs> are we ready to jump yeah, into the, uh, to okay. the meat of it here? Yeah, let's go.
0: Okay, so as as Aaron mentioned, we will kind of mention page numbers, but again, you don't need to jump to it to have this you know be of value to you. The first one we want to kind of get into is is page four of the report, and it's something near and dear to Aaron's mine heart, which is. The oversupply of debt, and we'll also mention equity secondarily, but I'm sure this is meant to be focused on on debt only. Uh, you know, Interestingly, the last couple of years, if you spoke to anybody in real estate, of course, they tell you that there's ample supply of debt straight across the board here. When you're looking at the numbers, the availability from 2018 to 2019 has jumped up straight across the board. In, uh, for acquisitions, for refinancing for development and then of course uh, the equity, yeah, equity as and well. the equity
1: number is just massive yeah. I mean if you do year over year last year 17% responded oversupply this year it's basically 70% responded oversupply. So I mean are you we're gleaning information out of this like what would you be taking this and then you know using it to help kind of guide some of your clientele? I think first of all this was a, a
2: function of you know when people looked around and saying you know where do I got to put money? You know, the capital markets, you know, were, were not great. And people were saying, well, where, where are we going to put this money in it? And it just found that it was being dammed up in a lot of these funds. And a lot of it was being directed at real estate as an alternative class to invest in. And, you know, everywhere we went and every person we talked to, you know, they said there is no shortage of debt or equity capital. You know, we have no problem raising it. We have no problem Tapping into it. The problem was deploying it. That yeah. was the big issue. And how do we how do we do that? Because there was so much capital, pricing on a lot of the real estate assets were going through the roof. And so that was the biggest challenge that most, you know, private
1: investors,
2: public investors had in terms of saying, you know, where am I going to invest
1: um sure. you know the the, the capital it, that we have getting a yield that is attractive, I exactly. guess, the hard part. You're going to get the money in there, but you're going to end up paying more, returning less than you wanted to.
2: And the interesting thing is that this is not a Canadian phenomenon. So I sit on our global uh, real estate leadership team, and so we have a call you know, every month, and we talk about what's happening in all the other countries. And you know, this is a recurring thing, theme that we're hearing, mm-hmm. that asset prices are being bid up all over the world. Part of it is, again, a function of the rise of the wealth that's happening in Asia and other parts of the world. And people now seeing real estate or having seen real estate as a true institutional quality type of asset to own. And so all your class A type assets right around the world are all being bid up in terms of their prices because there's so much capital going after so little product. And so, what's happening, and what you're seeing, and again, this might be a function of it, is saying, well, we can't find it, or it doesn't make sense anymore in terms of the yield. So, you're seeing more and more of these pension funds and others that need that capital. I need out, that asset. going out of their backyard. Like going leaving. out, not yeah. only going out of their backyard. So, you're absolutely right, but also building it right mm-hmm. and developing. Because if it's not there or it doesn't make sense because of the pricing, well, we'll build it.
1: All right. Let's jump around a little bit because I guess one of the next. Topics that were that were covered, and I'll have to find the page. I'm sorry, but was diversification right? Mm-hmm. You're seeing a lot more year over year, you know, respondents saying, "Okay, yeah, no, now I'm finally thinking I got to get out of my core asset class and start looking at alternatives just to diversify to protect against some disruptors that are coming." And that may be the next topic. But you want to talk about what you're what you're kind of seeing out of that?
2: Yeah. So when when we met with the executives and we talked about you know where they're where they're investing, you know, I think that that kind of reinvest that redeploying of capital was, you know, effectively saying, you know, we got to start to color portfolios, take down the ones that maybe aren't as good, take that capital and redeploy it in our better assets. Because I think that was a function of, you know, the uncertainty dial that was being turned up in the real estate industry. Mm -hmm. So as that uncertainty dial was turning up, they're saying, okay, you know what, I want to make sure I have the best assets. So what are they doing? They're redeploying their capital. They're taking out some of their what I call lower quality assets, redeploying it into other asset classes. Others are saying, you know, especially when we spoke to a lot of the retail's owners of assets, they're saying, well, you know what? I've got a lot of excess space here as well and land. Maybe there's an opportunity to kind of, you know, yeah. get into that multi multi-family space and build some condos or build some multi-family on our space. And so we're seeing that oh. happening. So that. You know, is when we talked about redeploying and reinvesting and diversifying some of their portfolio. That's the context that we heard from
1: the yeah. executive. Shameless plug: We had Jonathan Gitlin on, who's COO of Rio Can. He was here basically announcing Rio Can Living, and it was shortly after they had kind of disposed of a whole bunch of their you know B quality assets, B sites, and we're redeploying that capital towards apartments and there condos. So that's the easiest, you know, highest level example.
0: Yeah one one correction: Jonathan Gitlin has been promoted to president.
1: Oh, sorry, sorry Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My bad. (laughs) Let's move on to disruption, right? And disruptors that we're seeing. And I'm gonna just list the top five or six here because I think they're all kind of interesting. And this is really along the prop tech lines. You know, drone technology, autonomous vehicles, cybersecurity, construction technology, 5G implementation, big data analytics. I mean, these are all things and the Internet of Things, which is a big one for me, co working blockchain, actually these are all fairly fascinating. And I guess that speaks to what you're talking about, this move and trend towards diversification is saying, I don't know how any of these things are gonna actually impact. Real estate at large, ultimately, but I better protect myself in some form or fashion. Is there anything in that list? I just came. I'll, I'll finish it for you. There's augmented virtual reality. There's 3D printing, workplace automation, and sharing. Sort of the gig economy at the very bottom. Yeah. So those are all, I think, have have a potential impact, major impact. Some no impact, others potentially. But anything in that list that kind of you think is the most fascinating. There's a lot of you know. Before I get to that, I did want to
2: touch on one thing. So it was interesting. A few years ago, we've always had these items. This was never really on the agenda of the executives, or we didn't. It never really came out as something that was important to discuss or really talk about. Wasn't top of mind for them. Was not top of mind. Bricks but and I, mortar, good site, good borrower, whatever. Yeah, right? Yeah. But I can tell you that last year was the first time that we had a lot of very interesting conversations around prop tech, which is the convergence of technology and real estate, and you know. Real estate owners and real estate people, for the most part, have been laggards in adopting technology. You know, they were busy doing the deal, not worried about their IT systems. Most a lot of them are antiquated, and now they're all doing catch up. And part of this, you know, when they look around and they see what's happening, you know, I think they realize Mm -hmm. they are going to be disrupted. And for those that think that they're not, they're in for a rude awakening. You know, one of the scary parts was we did a PWC did a global CEO survey and they had it broken down by industries, the real estate executives. 10% 10% weren't afraid of the change of speed of technology. Compared to the under in- industry, 38% of the CEOs were afraid of the speed mm. of industry and the impact it's going to have. Mm. So it's kind of resonating to say, you know, they've been slow off the mark in terms of how is Prompt Tech going to impact my business? But I think in the last year, it's spiked big time. So you see all of the large, very large you know, funds now, they've invested heavily in, in some of these prop tech funds. So when I look at, you know, you listed a whole bunch of them. You know, there's a lot there that have a potential of being big disruptors. You know, blockchain. It seems so far out there, but believe it or not, in Poland, the entire land registry is on the blockchain now. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a one example. I think that you know, in our report, it came out when we asked the individuals, you know, they said drone technology is going to have the biggest impact. You know, personally, I still haven't seen that, but you know, from a lot of the people that we spoke to, they figured drone technology is going to have in terms of, you know, uh, on the construction site, in terms of, you know, last mile delivery. So as they build out buildings and how they're going to have docking stations put in place for them and all that. But I think there's all sorts of things that are happening right now that are pretty impressive, like whether it's VR, AR in terms of selling space. You know, we're at an event where they use this technology to basically lease, you know, 40,000 square meters of space in the UK, I think it was to Google, and it was all done virtually. Hmm. You know, so sight unseen. It was, you know, this is what the space is going to look like. This is how we're going to do it.
1: We've and, heard of condo developers doing that
2: too, yeah, right? And condo developers are doing that. And again, so it's happening right now. But I think what really, you know, the impact. I think the bigger impact of prop tech is when it starts to impact your revenue models. Like these are all nice things and, and nice to do, but when they, you know, what's really important to the people are, you know, can I. Drive reductions in my costs and can I drive different
0: revenue models? Especially in a, a low yield environment, which we're exactly. seeing numerous asset classes, you got to yeah. look somewhere else yeah. to drive innovation, drive change. Right. If everybody could buy it at 10 cap, well, maybe they don't care so much. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, but you're buying an apartment at two and a half, you better do something to get that up. Exactly. It's exactly. Gonna be, it's going to be a little
2: thin. So I think that's going to be, from my perspective, an area that's going to be pretty exciting in the, in the years to come in terms of what we see happening. We're seeing so many funds that are being set up. There's going to be some unicorns out there that are going to really have a, a, a significant impact, I think, on the real estate industry. And then there's also a lot of noise there out there. Oh so yeah, can't that's the there's hard a lot, part, right? There's a even lot on
1: this list, I mean, I listed a whole bunch of things and there's no artificial intelligence, there's no um, you know quantum computing, there are, there are things on here that I would say maybe even more significant that aren't even captured yet, right? Well, so. the
2: AI, there's an interesting, I got to tell you this, 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 was, this blew my mind as well. So we had our digital real estate leader from overseas that came. And we brought her along, Julia, to a number of our top clients. And she was kind of talking about, and you know, for whatever reason, in the in, in Europe, I think they're at the top end in terms of designing all these new prop tech companies. I think in the US and North America, they're good at executing and getting them to market. But anyways, she was talking through a bunch of things. And one of the things that kind of blew me away was about artificial intelligence and how they're using it to design the most efficient effective buildings on a plot of land and they use ai and basically they have a plot of land from that they put in all the the different you know zoning re- requirements, zoning requirements yeah. the light that travels over the area the noise put all these factors in and from out of that comes Just you know what's pumps. the what is the best configuration of the buildings for the best use of this site it's interesting a couple of private equity firms wanted to put money in this, but they're kind of being you know saying no we'll, right now we will choose who we want to to work with because they believe they have something really special uh, that
1: sounds sounds very interesting and I think there's more to it I mean even today I often discover that there's AI kind of working in the background of a technology that we're already using that you're not even aware is there it's it's one of those technologies kind of creeped into our everyday lives that you're not even really you know cognizant that it's there mm-hmm. I think that's going to happen more and more and more as, as these things sort of you know, speed up. It seems like it's exponential. as, f- as how fast they come at you. Yeah.
2: And the other thing, sorry, that I just wanted to leave. The other thing that should be a giveaway is the amount of investment that's going in there.
1: So right. you know, that, the there's capital a ch- flows. There's, right, there's yeah. a
2: chart in there that shows that investment in terms of prop tech companies went from three billion to five billion in one year. Mm-hmm. So follow the money. If that kind of money is going into these funds to invest in prop tech, there's something
0: there. It's it's arrived. Yeah, yeah. One of the ones we wanted to mention. It's on page five. You mentioned, of course, that this was launched in October, and here we are in April discussing it. And so it's you know bit of a bit of a lag. So we get to see how m- much of this has come true since. And one of the predictions, and I'll point out, this is the interviewees said this. This is not PwC's position. This is the interviewees, of which I was one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Expe- the, most, the most important, apparently. <laughs> yeah.
0: the expected interest rates to continue to increase gradually over the next year. And of course, we've seen.
1: What are you doing? Just pointing? Ha, ha, you were wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but it is funny to see it because it's. Uh, I,
0: mean, I mean, bond yields are difficult to predict at the best oh, of man. times, so what? I will forgive the interviewees for this. Yeah,
1: one, no, no, and, uh, and you know it's true, and it's funny because I was thinking as you were speaking that this is as close as you can get to kind of the crystal ball. I mean, I, you'd mentioned an individual who references this as the the best report. I don't know if you can you can say that on on air, but it is amazing because of the number of people you have, Adam, despite Adam's participation, (laughs) the the quality of the people participating and and giving it, and to have a sense of what these great minds in the industry are thinking, it is as close as you can get to where is our industry going. Otherwise you're just throwing darts at a wall or reading the tea leaves or whatever, you know, whatever um, metaphor you want to use. Right. And so, I'm joking with Adam, but fair. They can't always be right, right? So, Well, we've been trying to predict the interest rates yeah, for never, forever. forever. and yeah. never got Yeah, that yeah. Right. and you know what? Tomorrow they could be up 100 basis points, right? So <laughs> maybe you are right in the grand scheme of things. But today, seeing our office in the middle of April, they're right back now. down to kind of historical <laughs> yeah. lows. Yeah. Fortunately and unfortunately, depending on which side of the ledger you're on. Yeah.
0: On, uh, on page 10, we've got a uh, you know, two-part chart here. It's prospects for commercial and multifamily subsectors. So there's a whole bunch of asset classes listed, not just the big four, you know, really gets into shit, na- in you know, urban high street retail, single family rental, luxury hotels, you know, really gets down. But something that I jumped out to me, this is both for investment prospects and development prospects. The number one pick for both is fulfillment. That's the best place to buy on a stabilized basis and the best place to, to build right now. And interestingly, the bottom one of this 15 asset class list for both the least bright outlook is uh, power center's so I don't think either of those are, you know, truly surprising, but it is an indication that the market is very clear on both the top and bottom. And you picks. can you can
1: tie and, that back into drone technologies, which is that last mile in the fulfillment centers and the need for for that type of space and, and then how that combats almost directly with the power centers yeah. and the need for that space. Or or
2: basically you can just tie that back to say that the success of the warehousing and fulfillment is on the back of retail. Cause that's really that's really what it is. Like that whole we, you know the last couple of years and what we've seen and why the industrial segment and the warehousing segment has been so strong is basically because of the rise of e-commerce. So if you take a look at what's happened to e-commerce in Canada and the growth in e-commerce in Canada, that's a direct impact on why this asset class has been so strong and it shouldn't be a surprise and I think you know it was funny one of the interviews interviewees when I was talking to them said Really, this is the new retail sector for them you know, because it basically is integrated and, and that's why it's so successful. And if you take a look at that asset class, it's the one asset class, which I'm sure you're well familiar. For the longest time, the net effect of rents were flat. And it's only this last year that we started to see this ramping up of the net effect of rents in industrial because there's so much demand because of that. Need for logistical space and warehousing.
1: I mean, especially if you go across the country, I mean, particularly in southern Ontario, <laughs> rents were what seemed artificially low if you compare it to what yeah. we, were, we were gaining or earning in Calgary and Vancouver and even Montreal. But well, I think we're seeing the more of an equilibrium occurring nowadays. Mm-hmm. I started uh,
0: my career in industrial real estate, I guess, nine years ago, and guys then were complaining that uh, the, the brokers, the landlords, everybody, that rents had not moved yeah. even then previously, probably been seven, eight years.
1: And then that stayed for at least another six after that. And And there's still, there's a ways to go. It would appear, right? Yeah, but
2: no, this year now, everyone that we talked to, and even in Q1, the net effect of rents on industrial are clearly moving up. Moving up. Yeah, they're
0: clearly moving up. Another interesting point I saw in the same uh, chart under investment prospects. Right in the middle, side by side, meaning they're very close in terms of their viability for your investment dollars. Affordable apartments is right beside high-income apartments. So literally... Doesn't really matter. Pick one or the other, high or low. Does
1: not matter. Put your money well, into it. and rentals. And <laughs> rentals, yeah. And I'd not seen this before in any any reporting. But you've you're you've now broken out the apartments into three separate asset classes. Effectively, you've got the high income apartments. You've got moderate income class slash workforce apartments. Then you've got affordable apartments. And so, what was maybe talk to why you felt the need to kind of split them up that way?
2: Well, I think a lot of it actually was driven. You know. With our U.S. counterparts as well, I think it's much more I think meaningful from their perspective in terms of that. You know, they were they tracked those a lot more. So here, when we did ours, we kind of just wanted to keep that consistency right across. You know, both Canada and the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so we looked at. You know, those three different ones. Yeah. But, but to be honest, I'm not sure that, you know, we go into that level of minutiae, but in the US, they do. They do want do.
1: it. It makes sense to me. I mean, First National being the largest apartment lender, it's something that we're constantly thinking about and how do we kind of classify it. And I do that. Yeah. That does make sense for, for those listening. Moderate income slash workforce apartments was, is effectively tied with fulfillment for number one as far as investment prospects and then is number five in development prospects. But significantly above both the affordable housing, affordable rentals and high Income rentals. So clearly, you know, the respondents are saying out of the apartment world, I'm in the middle ground. I'm not building luxury. I'm not building affordable. I'm going to build sort of moderate price. Missing middle. The missing <laughs> middle. Yeah. But, you know, what do you call that? Like was, if high level is, if luxury is five bucks a square foot using kind of Toronto denominators and affordable is two bucks a square foot, you're still talking four bucks, three and a half, four bucks, which is you know, $3,000 for a thousand yeah. square foot apartment, which really isn't it's affordable. All relative, it's right? all <laughs> relative, right? But that's, the. I mean, that's we've talked about this off air, but there's this, you know, this battle right now within the industry about affordable does not mean subsidized, right? Affordable just means something that people can afford. Right. And, you know, how do you battle that? Any comments of what you think the approach is for our industry? Jeez, if if I knew that one. That I know, but I mean, there's gold. lots, there's lots. But what, what <laughs> no, would you pick out You know,
2: I, I think, you know, th- there's been a lot of discussion around affordability. And I think the message that I would say is that it's a shared responsibility. It's not going to be just the developers that make the affordable housing. Government has a big part of it. And w- when I talk about government has a big part of it, you know, what we hear and read often is land supply is driving a significant, you know, of the cost, a significant amount of the cost up. And, you know, I am one of those that, that agrees with that and saying that, you know, we have a significant issue that there is no supply of land. And, you know, I took, you know, it's, it was a long time ago, but I know that the economics still stands. I took my Echo 100 class and, you know, when there's no supply and lots of demand, there's only one thing that happens. Prices go up and that hasn't changed. And I think that's what's driving a big chunk of this. It's just, there's a constant demand, which is being impacted by our immigration policy, right? So the government says we want 300 to 350,000 people to come into the country each and every year. And guess where do they land? They land in Toronto, Vancouver, and the big cities. And when you have a vacancy rate in rentals of, you know, sub 3%, you know, where are people going to go? They need housing. So there is that pent up demand. And so when you don't have that supply and it's not coming out there because it takes such a long time, it's going to just drive those prices sky high. You know, I think we talked briefly about, you know, you you look in some cities in the U.S., you can take some raw dirt and get it ready and developed within 6 to 12 months. You know, here I've got clients that have been trying to zone stuff that's already residential here in the city, taking them 10 years. You know, that has an enormous amount of cost factored in there. Mm -hmm. And so- clearly there's a responsibility of the government to deal with that supply issue. And if they don't fix that, we're never going to get to some you know, sense of affordability, if you'd like. You know, the other thing that a lot of people don't realize, and I think we tried to point it out, this, this was the first time in, in our report, to say you know, we've heard a lot about affordability and a lot of people saying, you know, why is why driving? Yes, land prices is one. The other is just the taxes. So when you buy a new home, or a condo, twenty-two to twenty-five percent of that cost. So you buy a million dollar, quarter million dollars of that are government levies. You know that's a massive, massive amount. So maybe we start there
1: yeah, and sure. land
2: prices and talk about you know how we can do that
1: and timeframes to get things approved and
2: timeframes. Yeah, that's that's probably the biggest thing. I think if you were to ask most developers what they would want is timeframes and certainty. They don't want to buy a Personal of land, and then know that it's going to be held up for the next 10, 15 years before they get yeah. every you know report done and signed yeah, off. Yeah,
1: and, and part of that is you know, zoning and appropriate yeah. zoning, and right. you know changing the official plan. There's lots and lots of Tons. solutions, yep. but it seems like nobody wants to make the make the effort for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they love talking about it. Let's get reports on those reports well, and see what that's, they say.
2: That's part of the problem, right? Yeah, it's just never
0: ending. Page eleven, we've got investment recommendations. So this is your classic buy, hold, sell. Mm-hmm. So I remember, I remember filling this part out, just, uh, you know, 15 different asset classes come up and you pick buy, hold, or sell for each. And so, the, I mean, we're not going to cover all 15, but the few that kind of stuck out is interesting. Topping the list, moderate income apartments, which we already discussed in the previous page.
1: To, to as far as buy. Buy, yeah. 56% buy. It's, it's this the top buy. Well, and that's if you're reading the tea leaves or whatever, you're looking at saying, well, we can't Provide enough supply over the next fifty years, so I know my rents are going to be up, my vacancies going to be down, my cash flow is going to be stable. So just get in there and hold on to it as long as possible, right? That's exactly. There's no it. disruption coming yeah. to that. People need. That's I mean, exactly so that old ad is: you need someone. Everyone needs a place to lie their head down at night, right? right? So it's not like there's going to be some new prop tech that's going to convince us to you know, twenty four hour days or you know sleepless lives or whatever it mm-hmm. is, right? Although Adam would like that. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> uh, the other one that stuck out is. On this list, there's 15 You know, so we said 15 we um, different asset classes. The bottom three are all mall-related or retail-related. But in the number five spot, neighborhood community shopping centers are a 38% buy. They're fifth highest on the list. And that's surprising, very surprising. I think that you see the rest, other kind of retail categories get such a negative rating, and then that one stood
1: out. That one's interesting because it's the fifth highest is on the buy side, but also the fifth highest on the sell side. So it's almost like people are confused about you know where that asset class is going. Any yeah. any thoughts?
2: I think that what you know where you have grocery anchored, you know, necessity based like service types, service retail. Yeah, you're, where you have that that that's always going to be good. And people are you know we're relatively and I mean, bullish might be a, a strong word, but comfortable with definitely comfortable with that asset class. Where they had concerns was clearly the big box retail, right? Because you know that's going to be disrupted significantly. Now, having said that you know with amazon and all of those now getting into food and all that kind of stuff who knows what's going to happen to that segment as well but clearly the reason why that was always a, a good winner and people would say we invest everybody's got to go shop they need food they got to go there and when they're there they're going to stop off at the pharmacy they're going to stop off at the, their dry cleaner those rents are always going to be there they're always going to you know deliver you know sustained rents you're not going to have the big vacancies and you're not going to have the big huge anchor tenant that's going to blow up, you know, south of the border and all of a sudden you got a big yeah, hole in your yeah, mall, yeah. right? So, I think that's part of the reason that, you know, we we heard heard that message. You can tie
1: them together too. If, I mean, a lot of those sort of community shopping centers with, you know, you just imagine your mind with the dry cleaners and the flower shop and the convenience store and mm-hmm. a subway and a pizza hut or whatever mm-hmm. it is. They're typically surrounded by apartment buildings too. Absolutely. So, if you've got, you know, you own those apartment buildings the people need a place to run to grab you know, the, the, whatever they forgot for dinner or whatever it may be. Right. Exactly.
0: Or in a longer time horizon, if things really do change, you rezone it for residential and build your own apartment building. Right. With yeah. retail on the main floor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's what you're seeing happen. Yeah, exactly. Right? And then the last one. So at first national, we don't really do a whole lot of hotel lending. So we're not super engaged in that asset class, but you do hear a lot about it, especially the last couple of years, everybody's talking about what a hot asset class it was. But on this report here of the 15 listed, it is fourth from the bottom. It's only 11% buy and 50% sell right now. Luxury hotels, very surprising to see that they're given all the positive press. Unless there's been a massive change that I missed in the last year. I'm surprised to see it there. Just blame uh, Trump.
2: Yeah, no, I yeah, I was surprised as well, seeing it there to be quite honest. And, and I think from my perspective, it's more of a function of what's happening in the broader economy. And, you know, clearly, you know, one of our opening questions to most interviewees is, you know, what's your sense of the economy? And, you know, a lot of them felt that there was some uncertainty. And whenever there's uncertainty, people maybe aren't going to be spending as much on going to luxury, you know, hotels. That's the only connection I could make. But yeah, that was one that I was surprising as well to me.
0: On page 12, there's a pretty good chart about single-family residential. You know, not that Aaron and I focus a whole lot on that in our day-to-day endeavors here at First National, but it is interesting if you look back, you know, 10 years, what's being delivered versus now in terms of uh, condo versus single-family residentials. Do you want to comment on that and what, what do you think about that? Well, I think the, the biggest thing that
2: struck me, and I guess it shouldn't be a big surprise, is just how it's all flipped. You know, If you take a look at uh, the number of units that were delivered in the rental space in 2017 across Canada, we had about 16,500. You fast forward to 2017 and you have close to, uh, you have just over 49,000 units. So a significant shift. And you look at number of actual homes that are built, single family homes, 55,000 in 2007, and you have about 55,000 in 2017, no movement there. And therefore, then the biggest change was clearly on the condo side where you see a big, big flip there as well. You know, we had 84,000 or so in 2007, and we've got, you know, close to 115,000 in 2017. So what's really interesting here is what's being delivered to the market. And again, that's a function. Of really a big part of it, of all the, you know, like here in Ontario, at least the places to grow, the urbanize you know, the intensification of the urban centers, that's really changing, really the housing stock that's being delivered to the market. That's one thing that kind of stuck out for me in terms of seeing that big shift.
1: When you're in your discussions uh, those sort of monthly meetings on the global side does that topic come up and what are they seeing or what are you hearing that's happening around the world with respect to that kind of that similar trend I suspect it's the same in lots of places
2: Absolutely and and it's interesting on our global leadership meeting the comment the discussion of affordability is topical it is you know we talk about it all the time it's issues that are faced in all of the countries all around around the world and it's something that you know clearly it should be no surprise. And it's really a demographic issue. You know, you, you look back and you take a look at, you know, the megatrends, and you really think about those mega trends, and they really are starting to have and see that filtered that impact that they're having. And one of the big mega trends is that whole urbanization that's happening. And it's not happening just in Canada, it's happening all over the world. And with that urbanization trend is a huge stress on the housing stock and the housing need. And therefore, what you're seeing is a significantly more on the multifamily side mm-hmm. than on the single family.
1: Just a Do you think, and this may be a bit off topic, but what impact does transportation have on these trends as well? I mean, it's maybe it's too hard to, to brush with one big stroke because it really depends on what's going on in those individual cities. But that's one of those things that we cover a lot in, in sort of the GVA and the GTA about just the ability to get downtown, and you know, in, in Vancouver, of course, everything's getting funneled through these couple bridges, which makes it an absolute pain. And in, in Toronto, we're having a real hard time just getting anything built to help people, sort of, with the public transportation and, and commute times. And it's similar in lots of places around the world. And does that ever come up in some of these discussions that you have? And it's music to my ears. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, <laughs> what, what do you? How do you? What do you think? And what's the? What's the sort of the trends? Or what do you? How do you use that information to kind of give guidance or give okay. counseling to your clients?
2: Music to my ears. If you go back to our 2018 report. We talked about it briefly in 2019, but much more in uh, 2018, which was transit-oriented development. And I think, you know, you're spot on there. I think transportation is a huge impact, and it's what's driving or should drive good development. And, you know, unfortunately, as you know, we here at least in the GTA and uh, even in Vancouver and Montreal and the big markets, I think we've kind of neglected that part of the equation, and it's had an impact I think there's a huge opportunity, a huge opportunity to really develop good, you know, both office and family, family homes like multifamily and condos all along these transit nodes. And it's a huge issue, actually, when I say huge issue is a big trend in the US as well, that transit oriented development and saying, you know, where if you create a good transit infrastructure with good hubs, it creates good real estate. Right, because people got to move from A to B, and then you've got great opportunities to develop good real estate between point mm-hmm. A to B. If you've got good, good infrastructure, infrastructure but, but it's
1: almost a build it and they will come, not the other way around, but, which but is uh, the challenge, but that's, right? But
2: that's what we got to do. And like you know, if you, I'm not sure if you've ever gone down. Well, I'm sure you have. But if you go to in the East End and you look along, you know, even the Danforth there, and you've got all those lines there. Mm-hmm. And what do we have there? All low-rise stuff. Yeah,
1: restricted heights on because of the. I, don't get me started on NIMBYism. It's, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> all crazy. other. Epi- it's all other episode. It's crazy, right? But. Yeah. This is anecdotal, but you know, I found it always. I always kind of giggle to myself driving east towards sort of Kingston. When you get, you know, just past Oshawa, I believe, and there's this huge infrastructure project where they're building the 412 that connects to the 407, and it's it's this massive highway which feels like it's in the middle of nowhere. I don't remember any discussions going on in any levels of government about the billions of dollars it costs to build that. Yet we can't build three subway stops in Scarborough because of the number of people that are just up in arms about it. And I I keep thinking to myself, like, does that it just it's, it seems to be a, a disconnect. And, you know, it's so easy to get up highways built. It's like, of course you'd build more highways. Why wouldn't you build more highways? But, yeah. oh, no, no, you don't need anything underground. Don't build another subway. Like, it's just, it seems weird to me. The future's not long distance commuting. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, I don't know. And I guess, like, I don't know. Anyway, it, it, I always giggle. Like, look at the amount of money they're spending on these things that, yeah. Yeah, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to be the, the appropriate use of the cash. Okay, for the next one is page
0: 15, but I'm going to ask Aaron not to jump ahead. Okay. So, this particular section, this is survey respondents' views of their local markets. So, this is what Winnipegers think of Winnipeg. It's not based on data or sales volume or anything like that. It's just how do the local people think, view their own market? What do you think the top four cities were? The top four cities most enthusiastic about their own city.
1: And when you get the right you're asking you, me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's why don't look ahead. I, oh, I, have, uh, I have no idea. Montreal's got to be up there. There's one, yeah. I'm guessing Toronto, Vancouver. Yep. yep. And the fourth? You said Winnipeg. So, is it Winnipeg? It's not Winnipeg. Saskatoon no
0: I won't leave you hanging it's Ottawa Ottawa's oh yeah, yeah. okay yeah. that
1: makes sense Ottawa's had yeah, a couple yeah. of good years in a row they're so doing they're well they're doing good. well up there yeah. building the good right goodness. infrastructure right? Yeah, yeah. and, it, and it, I focused on transportation if I, if I understand correctly <laughs> although not getting it built is that, is that right <laughs> yeah <laughs> But pretty good though.
0: Three to four, you got uh, very quickly. So that was that was good to so see. So the three biggest cities <laughs> yeah. in the country it wasn't that hard. <laughs> okay, but Calgary, is second from the bottom, yeah. and that's a big yeah. city. And, so and Calgary and Edmonton, a, yeah. in the
2: past,
1: was really good, but the last naturally for right. the last
2: number of years, it's it's, it's not been.
1: But uh, coming back, I mean, every year it feels like they're they're at the bottom of the trough and coming back.
2: It's still it's still a challenge there, yeah. um, especially the office market. Surprisingly, the only one that isn't you know, what I'd say in bad shape is the industrial market. So it's still hanging on, but yeah, it's a, in the housing market, there's stuff. It's a tough, tough market.
0: I, surprised, I mean, obviously the headwinds in Calgary and Edmonton are obvious. I was surprised to see uh, Halifax at the bottom of this list here. I thought that they would, uh, There's a lot of development going on there right now. I know, I mean, I'm not too active in that market, but I know there's a lot of development going on. So you figured they'd be enthusiastic?
2: Well, a few years ago, they were actually quite high when they had made the announcement with the shipbuilding contracts and all of that. And if you go back, I think you would have seen a little higher, but I don't think anything's really come to fruition there. We've seen some development that's happened in the core, you know, in the, the new Congress center that they did there, the that they had built. But again, it's I think there's still, still work to do there.
0: And one that jumped out to me too, so this is all color coded and the brighter the green, the more enthusiastic they are under the subheading of uh, local development community. So this would be Vancouver local development community. It's a very bright green, meaning they got a very, very enthusiastic uh, response about developer view of the market. But it'd be funny, you know, this of course would have been done pre-October. And now here we are April. And so, given some of the headwinds that the condo builders are they're currently experiencing, it'd be, I'd love to see a recompiling of the information, which you're probably doing right now, which we will be. Yes, yeah. I, I'm excited to see how they feel about that as well. Yeah, because there it is, the brightest of green. You know, yep. cannot be cannot be any <laughs> neon there. Yeah. Uh, do you see any other surprises on this list, or is this kind of you know? If you were, I don't know how you how closely you follow each individual market in your day to day life. But. Well, I,
2: we do. You know, I've our clients kind of are you know in in each of these markets. So I've got a you know spend time and and understand what's happening. I think that this is, I'm anticipating that when we do the next round, that it may not be as green in the areas. I think, again, I think there's more, people are a little more, definitely a little more uncertain. You know, there's a lot of things weighing on them. And so um, that, I think that's what I'll be anticipating. It'll be interesting to see what the interviewees think. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, to
1: see the. It'd be interesting year, year over year color coding is to yeah. map out the. Uh, well, we ships. have to do that and see how it looks. <laughs> yeah. You know, one more question, Frank, before we kind of wrap this up, and it kind of ties everything together. But, you know, we've been talking about, you know, the lack of transportation and the challenges that, that has on on just, you know, living in a major city, the affordability. And, you know, we've talked about immigration and that, you know, there's the fact that the 350 or so thousand people a year that Canada is bringing in really focused on traveling to those urban centers, but you know, at some point, if you can't get people to and from their work from their house and they can't afford to live in anywhere but two hours away from their house, like that's gotta have an impact. And was there anything in the trends or anything that you personally kind of see that you think would be interesting to talk about?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that that's that's an important and something that we're gonna be following closely. I think that, you know, a couple of things that we've been hearing recently in the last couple of years is as pricing has continued to increase and affordability is getting out of the reach of many people. They're starting to look to beyond, so they're looking to the KWs. You know, they're looking to you know the Ottawa areas. They're looking outside, so they're moving out of the big, what I call you know Toronto, Vancouver cities. So we're s- starting to see people move out of those markets. You know, and naturally, it has all sorts of implications. If you think about it from a talent pool perspective, you know, it has an impact because you know, as more people come in here, the, the, the as you touched on, you know, congestion is, is crazy. People just don't want to to live in a city where it takes you an hour and a half just to get to, to the work and then an hour and a half to get back home. So guess what? You know, they're going to be looking outside. And so we are seeing that happening. And it's in the US, they coined this phenomenon as the 18-hour city. So we have the, so the ULI-PWC emerging trends about, I don't know, 20 years ago coined the 24-hour city, which is, you know, your gateway cities like New York, you know, San Francisco, L.A., and now they're saying what's happening really is the emergence of these 18-hour cities, which are not the gateway cities, the big cities, but the next ones where people are moving. Why? For a better quality of life, affordable housing, good jobs. And I think that's what we're starting to see and experience here in Canada, the emergence of these, we'll call them 18-hour cities that are going to grow, going to have these you know, great services. They're going to have... You know, um, so have amenities. some nightlife, have all the amenities, like everything you need, but exactly. it's just not the metropolis. Yeah. So if you look, if you look at, there's an interesting one. I know we talked mostly about Canada, but in the Emerging Trends Report, they looked at in the US, they said, what were the top 10 cities? And if you look at the top 10 cities and they had a graph over the years, the top 10 cities that came up in the 2019 were all, you know, in terms of opportunities, development and et cetera. They were all the small markets, Raleigh, Austin, you know, like all these smaller kind of what I call cities, and not New York, Boston,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: L.A. that you would think should be in there, right? So it's it was really telling, and I think we're seeing the tip of that here, and we're starting to see that develop.
1: It's got to be attractive for the, just the everyday Canadian, everyday Torontonian or Vancouverite. Just hey, wait a minute, I can still do what I'm doing, but live a ten minute drive from my house and my house costs one-tenth of what it would cost in those major cities. I mean, I certainly, I get the appeal. However, yeah. at the same time, there's draws to being in yeah. the core of one yeah. of the major centers. Aaron,
0: Aaron's uh, currently home shopping, oh, so he's worst. feeling the pain. Oh, it's <laughs> the worst.
1: It's the worst. Yeah, I'd love to live in Coburg and <laughs> work out, out of some small little office there. Although I don't think First National will let me. And I'm not willing to leave my job. I guess that's the crux, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm stuck here. So Frank, you know, we have this kind of final sort of question we ask at the end of every episode. And so do you, because of your scope, I'm really kind of interested what your answer is going to be. The ask is that you have infinite capital. You can do whatever you want. And so if you had the opportunity to invest in one asset class in one city, what would it be?
2: One asset class, one city in Canada has to be Toronto. Not because I'm here.
1: Only because
2: when markets go down, this is the one that's going to be impacted less. And when markets go up, this is the one that's going to really grow. So it's going to be Toronto for me. And an office, I think. That's where I put my money. Now, I'd still carve a little bit of money aside and put it in land because land here is going nowhere but up. Mm -hmm. Great.
1: Great answer. I like that answer.
0: We'll start shopping for an office tower. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I just happen to have a billion dollars. Let's go. Yeah.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, Thanks a lot for coming on uh, the show, Frank. We really appreciate it. It's great information, great insight. Thanks to our listeners for listening. Thank you to First National for sponsoring. Frank, hope to see you again next year. Uh, I'd gladly or, come here, or
1: not even next year. In like the next couple
0: of months, <laughs> Glad- the next year comes come up. Here. Okay, great. Absolutely,
1: thanks, Frank. Appreciate Take it. Care.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial, investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds
1: financial services commission of Ontario license number one zero five one four and eleven two five two.